With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome. We here at the Wealth DNA Radio Show are honored that you're joining us. We're especially glad if you're joining us live and live in Europe. Now, why do I say that? Because it it means you remember to change your clock since our last show and that it's one hour later than it has been during the winter, especially with me forgetting to reflect that time change in the initial show announcement. We got it corrected in the reminder, but it was wrong at the beginning. You see, our team in Arizona doesn't really think much about time changes. We don't do it. Well, wherever you're listening uh, and when, uh, whatever you're listening, whether it's to the live show or to the archive, I'm sure you're going to be glad you joined us today. Our topic today is should we stay optimistic? And by we, I certainly include all of our listeners as well as our investors around the world. Uh, it would be helpful if we could conduct a service survey of those listeners prior to the show or during the show to see how many are optimistic, neutral, or pessimistic and the prospects for the financial markets and why they think they might be better or worse. Secondly, uh, it would be uh, great to know the reasoning behind that view. You see, even optimists have reasons to worry, or at least reasons for caution, and likewise pessimists see silver linings to those clouds. I've got some favorite examples of silver linings, and those reflect um, the silver linings of recessions. See, recessions help clear out excess consumption, expansion, leverage, and speculation. They also give wise investors an opportunity to buy more at or near the bottom. The night is certainly the darkest, just before dawn. The old saying is that during bear markets, stocks return to their rightful owners, and I certainly hope that during this great recession that ended several years ago, you were able to buy back all the assets that rightfully belong to you. Of course, the flip side is that during the periods of economic expansion, rising asset prices like we've seen, everybody feels like a genius. Eventually, the real test of the genius will come. I'm confident listeners to the Wealth DNA Radio Show will pass the test in the top 5%. We've had full, five full years of rebounding asset values. U.S. equities are at the head of the pack, followed by global equities and many commodities. The rebound in bond values and precious metals was strong for the first few years and then declined, whereas real estate kept declining for those early years and then began its rebound two years ago. Now, wouldn't it be nice to be in all of the right asset classes at the right time? 
Unfortunately, neither I nor our guest today can guarantee that will happen, although I'm confident you'll hear some important insights and early signs today as to whether the good times are over or there's just much more to come. Now, we don't have time to debate whether the blood moon tomorrow will be an ominous sign or just another lunar eclipse. And remember, if we don't provide sufficient guidance with the topics we discuss, I suggest you let me know which topics you'd like us to address in future shows. And secondly, you can always take advantage of our double money back guarantee. We will refund double your money back, double what you paid to listen today. Today is April 14, 2014. It is 9.04 in Arizona, 12.04 noon on the uh, East Coast, and 18.04 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it, so we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona, and we don't change our clocks here. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., for helping us to put together some great information for you so we can offer that money back guarantee. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show like the earlier one on the fifth anniversary we had recently, which was in our unique multimedia format, you can find that on the archives. Just go to wealthdna.us where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during the show. The most convenient is the chat window below the radio player for coming in through the Internet, or call in our producer. He may share your question or comment with us. Uh, I might even put you on the air. That call-in number, 917-388-4162, and if you're on the Internet, it is at the top of the screen. Now, how did the U.S. equity markets end last week? The S&P 500 closed at its lowest level in two months. The gauge slipped 2.7% for the week and the biggest loss since 2012. The major U.S. indices are all back in the red year-to-date. Biotechs fell for the seventh week in a row, the worst run since 1998, and now down 21% from recent highs. Now, how are the U.S. equity markets today? Well, they're up strongly, and Asia was mixed Europe, which is closed, was up, and Brazil is down. No trends there. Incidentally, my comments about last week's market were taken directly from Friday's commentary by our special guest, Sinclair No. See, Sinclair has written books on estate planning, radio... uh, Excuse me, let me go through the books. Estate planning, technical analysis, debt and usury, the veterans' benefits, and he's also editor of eatthebankers.com. Gotta love that name. Sinclair is a veteran radio broadcaster. He's been the host of Financial Review since 1991. His daily commentaries, like the one that I um, took some of that commentary from, on the markets and the economy are heard in the, in the Phoenix area on Money Radio 1510 and Southern California on Money Radio 1200 and via the Internet at www.moneyradio.com. For some of you not in Phoenix or Southern California, now you know. You can hear his commentaries daily. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Sinclair No. Welcome, Sinclair, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background, and, and many of our listeners know you, uh, your voice at least from radio appearance, or they know you from seminars you host. But for our other listeners, how do you introduce yourself to a new group of people? I think you did a fine job. I've been doing radio for a very long time. 
I cover business, finance, investing, economics, written a few books on the topic, and uh, just try and come out every day and have something meaningful to say. One thing that I've learned over the years is that my listeners are smarter than me, so they always challenge me. <laughs> now, I should add that, the, uh, like the majority of our guests, you're not here to sell them something other than your experience and wisdom just for taking the time to tune in. Am I correct? That's it. Uh, I'll right. have folks tune in, and that's about all. Let's start with some broad questions. If we broke the population into two groups, the first being kind of the savers, the ones that uh, might save at home or in banks or buy CDs, and then the second group being investors who invest to grow their portfolio, I assume if we compare them, the investors would be the optimists and the savers would be the pessimists. Am I correct? Mm, not necessarily. Uh, what you've just described is more a reflection of risk tolerance than mm -hmm. a level of optimism. Someone can certainly be very optimistic and still risk-averse. Think of a 70-year-old person. He or she may be optimistic. They will enjoy another 30 years or so of a happy and productive life, and they don't want the volatility associated with most investing. Uh, now, I'm not saying that they should go and bury their talents, even at the age of 70 or older. On the other end of the spectrum, investment by its nature involves a certain amount of speculation, which can be Correct. volatile. And speculation uh, to an extreme end of the spectrum there would be gambling. And I never considered gamblers to be optimistic. Hmm. Well said. Well said, okay? Because I always think of the pessimists wouldn't want to invest their hard-earned money. So, uh, but I think that's well said. That doesn't mean that the other way around can't be true. It doesn't mean that what you're saying is incorrect either. It's just that you have to look at it individually and on each individual circumstances, and it's not a hard and fast rule one way or the other. And just like uh, investing, not every investment plan fits every investor. You've got to exactly. tailor them. Exactly. All right. If we look around the global village, we mostly hear about, especially from the media, we hear about wars, disconnect, content, famine. Um, what, are there still enough opportunities for economic growth and good investment opportunities out there? Oh, absolutely. Enormous opportunities. And especially for uh, innovators and entrepreneurs. Uh, specifically, you can look at a few areas, technology, uh, biotech just recently, think about the human genome, for example. There are tremendous advances going on there, tremendous advances going on in computing, robotics, and much, much more. Uh, we've seen a lot of interest in these areas expressed through valuations in the markets. At times, just recently, we've seen some overvaluations. That pendulum has probably swung a bit far. You think about the recent acquisition of WhatsApp, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the biotech stocks probably got a bit overvalued. But I believe that there's tremendous opportunity still and even bigger opportunity in the area of energy. And a couple of points on that subject. Mm -hmm. We've recently seen multiple reports from a consensus of scientists about climate change. This means we're going to be seeing massive investment in remediation and defenses against climate change, seawalls, flood control, major water projects and such, also investments in clean, green, renewable, and sustainable technology, 
And I believe that we are on the cusp, I know we are on the cusp of some world-changing innovation in energy production. Just as we've seen innovations over history, that saw mankind capturing the energy from wood and wind and water and coal and such, and how that fueled different changes in the economy. There exists now technology that captures multiple sources of energy and takes it to the next step by not losing energy in the production process. Essentially, we now have perpetual motion machinery. And I know that sounds impossible, but I've seen some of this innovation, and it exists. And just as the idea of flying to the moon once sounded impossible, <laughs> this is an idea that is only impossible until it is done, and it has been done. So, yeah, tremendous opportunities. All right, so just because all of the news is glooming, we might be better off turning off the TVs rather than assuming the world is ending. <laughs> I don't think the world's ending just yet. Okay, excellent. Now, as a matter of fact, some of your comments reminded me, you recently interviewed Alexander Green. He's the author of An Embarrassment of Riches. Now, when I first heard that title, I was thinking, oh, boy, here he is going to tell us about the evil of corporations that uh, don't pay their people enough or the evil of investors who take risks to increase their wealth. Uh, they're the root of all evil. But I was pleasantly surprised by his message. Now, do you recall some of his key insights that impressed you? It's been a while since I talked with him, but uh, I do remember the book, yeah. Uh, the human race essentially has never had it so good, uh, despite mm -hmm. what we hear pounded into us incessantly by the media. You look in the West today, we work shorter hours, we have more purchasing power, we enjoy goods and services in almost limitless supply, we have more leisure time than ever before. Our day-to-day -day lives are probably better than that of kings uh, 300, 400 years ago. Living standards are as high as they have ever been. The, the human lifespan has nearly doubled over the past 100 years. And uh, there are some different ways to look at that, of course. But then you look at literacy and education, um, even IQs. The IQs have gone up to probably all-time highs. We have technology that I was just talking about, mm -hmm. energy, medicine, revolutionizing our lives. So all forms of pollution, perhaps with the exception of the greenhouse gases, are in decline. We don't have cities just overrun with coal, unless you're in China perhaps, uh, overrun with coal uh, smoke. Access to the arts, never been greater. Uh, we can literally touch a button on an iPhone or a smartphone and, and get the latest opera or comedy. Crime is in a long-term cycle of decline. Hmm. The risk of death by violence has never been smaller for most of the world. Uh, you look right now, and we are not in a uh, world war. That's, that's a good thing, because there have been All a right. lot of world wars that killed so many millions of people. So right. almost any measure that you want to look at, we are enjoying an embarrassment of riches. We are wealthy beyond measure. We are all heir to that embarrassment of riches. Yet we keep hearing uh, from the media coverage about all the bad things. Um, right. And so Green, Green had a great uh, 
a, a great analogy. It was the average citizen is like a lottery winner whose ticket is lost in some upstairs drawer. <laughs> Put out sometime, well cash in that ticket. Exactly. No, good good memory. Now, I was just very, very impressed with his uh, his optimism, the voice, and all of that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, I think the market's going to go way up today after you're uh, uh, beginning to this show. So I think uh, I'm already getting more optimistic. But before we <laughs> dig in too deep, let's get some information to our listeners about how they find out more about your commentaries, what shows you'll be hosting or co-hosting. What are the best places that they can find that information? moneyradio.com. Uh, we have live streaming and archived audio there. My show airs at uh, 4 p.m. Monday through Friday uh, Mountain Time, Arizona Time, which is the same mm-hmm. as Pacific now. And then I write a daily blog, eatthebankers.com. Okay, and that's the uh, one that I cited earlier, and, and I'm going to keep referring to uh, through the show, I think, eatthebankers.com. Love that name. Let's turn to the equity markets next. A typical bull market lasts five years or less. Uh, last month, we celebrated five years, and just two weeks ago, we saw the 52nd and 53rd new highs on the S&P 500. Are we nearing the end, or will this bull rage on for years to come? Boy, I wish I knew that one. Uh, I don't, you don't, nobody really does, of course. Uh, There are a few things that we can look at. You're certainly right. Uh, Five years is generally the time that we look at for a bull market, and we have reached some high valuations. You've got current PE trailing 12-month earnings uh, higher than at average market peaks. PE is averaged a little over 17 uh, at the 18 stock market peaks over the past 100 years or so, PE for March 2014, 18.6. Um, that's above the PE where the market peaked in October 2007. Mm-hmm. Margin debt at all-time highs last I looked. And uh, five years, so we're a little bit long in the tooth here. Mm-hmm. And then the big point is the Fed is tapering QE and will be raising interest rate targets at some point. About a year ago, I found a chart of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet overlaid mm-hmm. on the chart of the S&P 500. You take away the labels, and it is hard to differentiate which chart is which. Uh, it's hmm. going to be extremely difficult for the Fed to exit QE without having some sort of an impact on the markets. And I don't think that it will be a positive impact on the markets as they exit QE and look at raising rates. That said, uh, corrections are typical. They happen. Mm -hmm. They happen all the time. And they are typically sharper and shorter than the bull market. So they can happen if you are prepared, if you are diligent. Um, You can survive a correction. And at some point, I think the markets will continue on, uh, probably end up 20 years from now quite a bit higher. But, yeah, we're a little long in the tooth right now. I just don't know when it's going to happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be uh, two weeks from now. It could be two years from now. But at some point it will happen. Mm-hmm. Well said. Now, one of the things that often uh, triggers one of those uh, bear markets or major corrections is a recession. And one of the fairly accurate predictors is uh, the um, 
which we call the yield curve. That's what Roberto was looking for. Uh, it tends to go flat or even go to an inversion uh, prior to a recession, and we're nowhere close to that. I mean, obviously, interest rates are very low, but we don't see any indication that the uh, shape is out of whack. So that would seem positive. Yeah, um, and it's reasonably normal yield curve. You're looking at three types of, of yield curves, normal, inverted, mm-hmm. flat. A normal mm-hmm. yield curve is one in which longer maturity bonds have a higher yield compared to shorter-term bonds, and that's just due to the risk associated with time. An inverted yield curve is one in which the shorter-term yields are higher than the longer-term yields. That, as you say, is typically an indicator of an upcoming recession. And a flat yield curve is where you have the shorter and longer-term yields very close to each other. Also, generally a predictor of economic transition. The slope of the yield curve, also fairly important. The greater the slope, the greater the gap between the short and the long-term rates. And around the end of March, the yield curve was flattening a little bit. The spread between the 30-year long bond and the five-year note was about 1.8%, smallest since October 2009. Now, October 2009 may not be the best five-year starting point. Anyway, there's uh, an economic model uh, from Michigan and Estrella. Based on February's data, the model gauged the probability of recession in the next 12 months at just about 1.3%. So probably not a problem for the broader market, but it might still be challenging for the financial sector. And when you see challenges for the financial sector, the financial sector is so important in the equities market right now, as far as profits are concerned, that Mm -hmm. that might be enough to cause a bit of a pullback and a bit of a concern. But for the broader market and for the actual idea of a recession, I'm not terribly concerned right now. But, of course, you know, you can always get something coming in from left field. Exactly. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you missed some of the prior shows, if you want to re-listen, we maintain an archive on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you to... Uh, Go ahead and send us a chat. Bottom of the screen is the best way. You could call in 917-388-4162. Our topic today is Should We Stay Optimistic, which we're discussing with Sinclair No, an author, veteran radio broadcaster, most notably on Money Radio, and he is the host of Financial Review for more than 20 years. I think he was two years old when he started, and editor of eatthebankers.com. It was a little more than two years old, right? But uh, but it is more than twenty years, so uh, that puts you into your uh, yeah, into your thirties, I guess. Now, uh, I was about nine. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> Sinclair, one of the fairly safe strategies uh, when we have such a a big boom uh, bull market as we've had for the last five years, is to take some of the profits where the gains were the largest, like the U.S. equity market, and reallocate some of that money into areas that have underperformed. What are your thoughts about diversifying into the world equity markets, into gold, uh, which we'll talk more about, and uh, into real estate, which st- is rebounded but to a fraction of its past? highs. What are your thoughts about that kind of reallocation? 
sure. Reallocation, rebalancing uh, should be part of most uh, portfolios. Uh, I have an old saying, you can't go broke taking a profit. Well said. Um, we could call the idea of moving into uh, real estate and other areas um, compared to the equity markets, uh, you would call this traditional versus alternative investing. But it's a little funny how perceptions have changed over time. Hey, investing in real estate, in gold, or in a business used to be considered traditional. And the stock market for a long time was just a rich man's game played out of New York. International markets were almost unheard of for all but a very few. Uh, but you look at the large institutional players, the pension funds and, and such, they all have real estate. They all have international exposure. Uh, many of them have some gold or precious metals exposure as well. So uh, a diversified portfolio certainly makes sense. I think to most people it makes sense. You could always uh, take the idea of putting all your eggs in one basket, but you have to watch that basket very, very carefully. You bet. So, no, I would I would agree. I, and that was one of the things we talked about on our, on our anniversary show. And during that show, Russ Wiles um, mentioned another area for optimism, which we didn't talk about too much. You touched on this area a little bit, the U.S. trend toward energy independence, which in a lot of ways would, of course, create jobs, but it would also reduce a lot of the current blackmail opportunities from the energy-producing countries. What are your thoughts on energy independence? Are we going to get there in the U.S.? And let's contrast that to what's uh, happening in uh, Europe and what they face. Mm. That is uh, perhaps that situation from left field. Yeah, part of the idea, of course, is the energy renaissance, uh, low-cost mm -hmm. energy that would increase manufacturing opportunities in the United States, resulting in resourcing of offshore manufacturing. We could see that it becomes cheaper to actually bring, um, bring a lot of manufacturing back to the United States because our energy costs would be so much lower and more reliable than other parts of the world. Uh, there are other factors at work, and we are still a long way from energy independence here. Uh, Saudi Arabia and other major OPEC producers tend to base their national budgets in large part on energy prices. Mm -hmm. So I really doubt that we're going to see oil prices under 85, more likely in the 95 to 110 range, unless there is some problem, which could be something like what is happening in Ukraine, uh, right. we are seeing a, a blackmailing a blackmailing situation uh, from Russia, and we are seeing energy used as a weapon. Um, the sanctions that we're talking about uh, against Russia um, and Russia's response to that, uh, this is energy as a weapon. Uh, it's an important part moving forward, and uh, as you say, uh, blackmail opportunities from the energy-producing countries. The U.S. is expanding exploration and development. We are drilling and pumping like never before. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, though, whether we can direct that specifically to Europe if they would be in need, if they get uh, shorted out by, uh, by Russia. I'm not quite sure we could, 
uh, at least not in a timely manner. Well, and the actual use of lower prices is going to be difficult because we're looking at a world market for oil and gas. So uh, it, it's still a bit of a trick. We haven't gotten to the point where we are seeing that resourcing uh, back to the U.S., but uh, it's important, and certainly we're in better shape uh, than Europe right now when it comes to energy, at least as far as uh, oil and gas. Okay. Let me take a topic that I've kind of seen pop up a little bit, not widely talked about. What happens, and, and, and by the way, I'm going to use this term um, uh, fairly uh, in a derogatory sense, and yet I think it, I am an environmentalist. I've cared about the environment and, and you know, have been done, doing a lot of the right things. But what happens if the tree huggers prevail and get fracking outlawed in the U.S.? If they prevail and get uh, fracking outlawed, then we will shift to other forms of energy. Energy is not just a financial weapon. It is a financial opportunity. And um, we're facing, I think, some serious climate change. Fracking is not the cleanest method of acquiring Mm -hmm. energy. There are much cleaner methods of acquiring energy. Question is, will we treat this as the pressing issue that it probably will turn out to be over the next several years. Uh, at one point, we, we made an all-out push to, to get a man on the moon. Uh, World War II, uh, we mobilized the country. We right. certainly have the capability to do it. Uh, the question is whether we have the will to do it. And the leadership. And the leadership, of course. There's another hour show, so we better not get down that path. <laughs> Today in the U.S. and, of course, parts of the Middle East, they're awash with natural gas. So I'm going to touch on this Russian situation a little further. And in many cases, they're actually burning off that natural gas at the wells due to the low price and, more importantly, due to the lack of pipelines. But other parts of the world pay four times as much, and, of course, they're captive to um, suppliers that aren't always friendly like Russia. It would seem that a major expansion of liquefied natural gas, or LNG as we affectionately call it, would allow that to be transported across the oceans and basically open up you know, huge economic expansion and, again, be one of those uh, ways to reduce some of that blackmail. What are your thoughts on LNG? Oh, you're certainly right. A year ago I was speaking at an economic conference, and one of my stock picks for the crowd was LNG. That was the mm-hmm. ticker symbol, uh, Chenier Energy, mm-hmm. right. which is involved in nat gas exporting. Uh, this was April of last year. The stock was around 24 at the time, and now it's about 55, 56. Mm-hmm. We're, we're still a couple of years from exporting enough to Europe to turn the tide against the Russian dominance in that market. The way to beat Putin is to flood the European market with fracked in the USA natural gas, or at least the industry would like us to believe that. Mm-hmm. Anything produced in the U.S., though, enters the world market, not specific to Europe. The gas industry has been arguing to Europe that the answer is to open up their nat gas fields to fracking as a way to ease their debt burdens. Why waste a good emergency? The industry has been using the crisis in Ukraine to expand its global market under this banner of energy security. Mm-hmm. And we have to, I think, look at that as, uh, as context. 
of an uninterrupted record among the energy industry for crisis opportunism. A single LNG terminal can carry about a $7 billion price tag. Plus, you have to have massive supporting infrastructure before it ever gets to the terminal. By the time these massive industrial products are up and running, Germany and Russia may well be fast friends. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But by then, few will remember that the crisis in Crimea was the excuse seized upon by the gas industry to make its long-standing export dreams come true, regardless of the consequences to the communities getting fracked or whether the planet's getting cooked. Right. If we talk about energy security, we really have to keep it in perspective of global warming. And while I had a good stock pick with LNG, there was actually a better play in TAN, which is the alternative energy or solar play in the form of an right. ETF, which was up uh, 100, 120% over the past year. This is the future, not oil or nat gas. The future is green energy. And I sincerely believe that anything else is really more of a misdirection than anything else. Well said, and, and, and very, very helpful because I've been researching this. I Fortunately, I did have a couple of good picks uh, for the last few years in the LNG arena, and they've done very well. Uh, yeah. But your points are a good one. It is a very expensive technology, the, the, both the import and the export terminals, the export being the most expensive. And uh, secondly, uh, fracking in, in Europe. I haven't I, I mean, kind of reached my desk yet as an idea, but you're right. There, there's got to be an opportunity for that, and that would be a lot faster, if not environmentally friendly, under, un, un, you know, agreed. But uh, when, when times are tough, you've got to do something, and that might be the faster and better. So uh, well said. Appreciate that. A lot of push for fracking in Ukraine right now, also in Greece. Uh, Greece is being pressured into it as a way to get out from underneath their debt problems. So far, they haven't uh, gone that route, though. Hmm. That may give, give me a good excuse to get over there this summer. Uh, <laughs> now, I really like the name of your blog, as I mentioned, Eat the Bankers. So let's talk a little bit about the Fed and the banksters, as I affectionately call them on this show. Starting with TARP back in 2008, trillions of dollars have been printed, created out of thin air. If all of that money circulated in the economy and the velocity of money stayed normal, we should see GDP growth of maybe even 5 6 or 7% and inflation in the double digits. But we don't. How do you explain why what went wrong as to why that scenario didn't happen despite all the trillions of dollars printed? Mm. Yeah, the Federal Reserve is probably trying to figure out a little bit of that as well. Uh, But I think it starts with uh, TARP. Uh, Remember what it stands for, Troubled Asset Relief Protection. Mm -hmm. In short, uh, this allowed the Treasury to purchase illiquid, difficult-to-value assets from banks and other financial institutions, toxic assets. Uh, The targeted assets can be... uh, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, CLOs, Mm -hmm. all these things that were sold in the boom markets up until around 2007. And then we got hit with the uh, widespread foreclosures on the underlying loans. TARP was intended to improve the liquidity of these assets by purchasing them using the Mm -hmm. secondary market mechanisms. Now, that would allow the participating institutions to stabilize their balance sheets and avoid further losses. Uh, So the real idea behind this was to shore up the banks, not necessarily to shore up the broader economy. 
there are mm-hmm. a whole lot of troubled assets. You're looking at really a black hole of toxic assets and bad debt, swallowing up all these assets, preventing future lending, capturing money velocity in cement or quicksand. Mm-hmm. In other words, this was a deflationary situation, and while it could turn to inflation very quickly, that fear of inflation is largely a result of fearing what we know, inflation, and failing to recognize what was actually happening at the time, which was deflation. All that bad debt was soaking up all the capital that the Federal Reserve could produce, and they were literally producing it out of thin air, and it was being swallowed up by the bad debt. Just as you create money, the reverse, uh, banks, you don't create money, I don't either. The, right, uh, right, the, federal, to, the federal, yeah. reserve, <laughs> federal Reserve, and actually the private banks are the ones that are creating the money out of thin air, and they do it when they create uh, a loan, a debt. Um, that's how money is created. Mm-hmm. And uh, so likewise, when you have bad debts, it creates a black hole, and that's where the money goes. That's where the Fed has been putting the money. You're right, though. If they had been putting it directly into the uh, into the economy and letting some of these big banks fail, or if they had never allowed the banks to get so big that they created a, an, a, a global institutional threat just from their sheer size, uh, then they could have put the money directly into the economy, grown the economy. We would have had uh, booming growth of GDP, probably 5 6 7%, as you say. They didn't do that, though. That's why I've, I still say we need to eat the bankers, chop them up into small digestible pieces that we can then eat if we have to. We get along well, I can tell. <laughs> We've got a lot of a lot of similar views here, and of course, I knew that from hearing your your commentaries and having met you. But uh, I was also very curious, kind of where after, and, and I agree, TARP and and that amount of money was trivial compared to the you know several trillion of of, of bad debt that was out there, and some of it's still there. So it's you know six years later, oh, we're yeah. still we're still dealing with it. So we shouldn't think that it's all gone. Uh, so I was kind of curious where it all went, and I did some research, and despite the Fed saying well, we don't really know, we don't have the data to tell us whether we should print more or slow down. Uh, I actually found a lot of data right in the Federal Reserve's own database, and the easiest way to kind of indicate it or to to, to see it is that uh, historically the excess reserves sitting in banks were zero. So if they needed to keep a million dollars, they kept a million dollars, maybe a dollar, or maybe they were shorted a dollar. But it it held at zero forever until 2008, and it's just about the TARP uh, timing. Now there's $2.6 trillion in excess reserves. So it sounds to me like the banksters are actually sitting on uh, the second half of the money that was printed. Agreed that, that TARP was absolutely needed. Uh, but then it seems like the more that's been printed, it's just going to the bank uh, coffers. Uh, we, we just brought in, uh, we didn't, but uh, the, somebody did, the uh, Janet Yellen. But if we put you in place there next month instead, what would you do to help this economy? Uh, I would apologize to Janet Yellen first. Uh, <laughs> because I, I, I don't think I would be a good replacement for her. Um, but I think probably turn the Fed into a public bank, return money printing authority back to the federal government. Um, And you could continue to have the Federal Reserve as a regulator of banks if you want, but uh, beyond that, not much. Uh, 
I, I don't particularly care for the way the Fed goes about many things, but they are there. They exist, and the idea of uh, getting rid of the Fed at this point is probably not that realistic. Um, a couple of great things to read, though, when it comes to Fed money printing, understanding okay. what's going on with the Fed. First, I would go back uh, to Wright Patman, a legislator okay. from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, he did some great, uh, simple, easy-to-read stuff. Uh, and then there's a new paper by the Bank of England that just came out in the past week or so. It's really rather revolutionary. You've actually got a central bank saying whenever a bank makes a loan, it simultaneously creates a matching deposit in the borrower's bank account, thereby creating new money. This was literally just one, two weeks ago. It's called Money Creation in the Modern Economy, published by the Bank of England. Uh, it's a short piece, probably uh, 12, 15 pages, something like that. And it's really quite remarkable that they're coming out and saying these kind of things now. Um, you know, as far as the excess reserves, I'm not sure that – I think it probably would be a good idea to uh, to eliminate the payments on those excess reserves, try and get mm -hmm. them back out into the economy again but there might be some unintended consequences with that as well. Uh, you try and push the bankers to do the right thing. They inevitably do the wrong thing, though. They might put it out there, but they'd charge higher rates for their loans. They might charge higher fees. Um, who knows what they'd do with that money. It's, and and the, the spread, the difference that we're looking at on what they're paid and not paid, although it would be a nice – uh, income for you or me uh, is not a huge motivator for the banks. Mm -hmm. Although I wouldn't mind earning a quarter percent on a trillion dollars. I, I could handle that. I, I, I'd take it any day. I mean, <laughs> it's something any, any dolt could make a profit on, and fortunately there are a lot of dolts in banking <laughs> making a profit on it. Oh, I like that. I might be quoting you on that one. Uh, while we're talking about Fed chairman, uh, did Ben Bernanke know something that isn't obvious to us and leave at the right time? <laughs> uh, you're talking about uh, turning over the chairmanship to uh, Jan Bellen. You bet. Uh, we are talking about the same Ben Bernanke who back in March of 2007 said, at this juncture, the impact on the broader economy and financial markets of the problems in the sub subprime market seem likely to be contained. We're talking about mm -hmm. that Ben Bernanke, that's, right? That's that's the one. Uh, We're talking about the one in, in, in June 2007, talking about the subprime fallout said, will not affect the economy overall. That, that, yeah. That's the one. That's the that's one. The uh, one. Let me put yeah. one one word of defense in, uh, one word of, of uh, well, a sentence in his defense. Uh, Alan Greenspan, his predecessor, left just before financial and housing crisis hit, putting Helicopter Ben into that hot seat literally in his early days. Yeah, um, Greenspan was past due for an exit, and uh, um, again, I'm not sure that we could count on Mr. Greenspan for any great forecasting abilities as well. Um, you know, the, many of the forecasters at the uh, Federal Reserve, particularly in the chairman's role, uh, seem to be about as helpful as uh, a bicycle for a fish. But you go back to, uh, to Mr. Greenspan, 
And I know that there's this idea that the Federal Reserve changes chairmanship. Uh, all of a sudden, we're looking at catastrophe. Uh, you look at 1987, mm-hmm. uh, Greenspan was at the helm a couple of months. Uh, then we had Black Friday, October 1987, market down at 22%. And I think you could say he had a tough day. Correct. But he brought it on himself to a fair amount by raising rates and shocking the market. Uh, he learned a lesson. Um, yeah, you got a rookie in the chair at that point, and uh, I think he learned his lesson. But you go back since 1914, the S&P 500 fell an average of 1.3% during the first three months in office for a new Fed chair. A lot of that heavily influenced by the stock market crash of 87. You sure. wipe out Greenspan's first year in office, and the S&P has actually been up 1% in the first three months under a new hmm. Fed chair. Never knew that. Never knew that. Okay. And and, and so far, uh, we have to admit that uh, Janet Yellen is fitting into that negative territory at the moment. So far, yeah. <laughs> so far, exactly right, exactly right. Things could, things could change. Okay, before we continue, for the listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion of the archive. If you missed uh, prior shows, you'll find them there too, wealthdna.us. Today our guest is Sinclair No, veteran radio broadcaster, most notably on Money Radio. He's the host of Financial Review. Our topic today is should we stay optimistic, and we have talked about a lot of good reasons. Uh, Sinclair, let's go back to gold. Many investors, including me, figured that with this amount of money printing, especially the the long time that many printing press has been on steroids, would lead to high inflation. Gold would be a great investment. Uh, And it was great. It was actually one of the best investments for the first three years of that money printing. And since then, it's been declined. What are your thoughts on gold? Actually, I think you can go back uh, beyond the three years of money printing because there was some money printing going on under uh, Greenspan oh, sure. as well. Sure. Um, my thoughts on gold, at some point in the next five to ten years, you will probably feel very good about having a little bit of physical in your possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the banks are getting out of the commodities warehousing business, so there is an actual chance that we could see some accurate pricing moving forward. Um, there is limited supply. There is continued uh, demand. There will always be demand for gold and silver. Okay. Patience. Patience. Sure. Uh, patient, patience is, is what it is. So it's, it's just one of those cycles as usual. Um, I generally feel the U.S. government's done a good job of maintaining the free markets, at least historically. Uh, but somehow I think gold prices and, of course, interest rates are manipulated. Any thoughts on that? Oh, they are. Absolutely they are. And we're seeing more and more evidence of that. As as the financial sector has grown, we have increasingly seen that all of the markets are rigged, whether it's the high-frequency traders skimming at the NYSE and the NASDAQ, uh, Mm -hmm. LIBOR rate rigging, the ISDA fix rigging, Forex rigging, the gold, uh, the London fix rigged, on and on and on. They are all rigged. All the markets are rigged. Once you understand that, you will probably do a little bit better in the markets. They're all rigged. Okay. All right. Because I was seeing evidence as well, and I thought maybe I was the only one in over-reading it. Uh, so very, very helpful. Now, I don't know about we, you. I'm we, gonna, you I'm I remember the, back. Oh, sorry. Let, me, let me just take you back a, a ways. Uh, back okay. to the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. There was talk back then of a plunge protection team. Remember? Right. 
Mm-hmm. Sure, and, because and, of the 10% drop, all that, of those things, sure. People who said that, oh, you must be imagining black helicopters as well. Well, it's actually the president's working team on financial markets, and they do get involved in the equities and bond markets very specifically and directly. All the markets are rigged. They're all rigged, and it's not some grand conspiracy theory. It's just the way it works. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, let's let's talk a little bit about interest rates, which we didn't touch on too much. Uh, if somebody asked me to provide a thirty-year fixed rate loan at let's say four percent, I would ask them what drug was recently legalized. So I actually agree with the banksters, which is very rare, that they should not be lending at these low interest rates. That uh, and, and basically what that would mean is that lending would actually increase as interest rates rise. Give us your thoughts on interest rates and 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 this whole concept of maybe the rates are too low. Well, I'm going to uh, perhaps surprise you. It would be far more prudent to make a loan at low rate than at a high rate. And that's not just me saying it. I I found a quote from, and I wrote about this in my book, Eat the Bankers. Uh, Adam Smith, the Mm -hmm. Scottish philosopher, wealth of nations, the one and the same, said Mm -hmm. this about uh, about the, the legal rate, usury, essentially. The interest rate ought not much ought not be much above the lowest market rate. If the legal rate of interest in Great Britain, for example, was fixed so high as 8 or 10%, the greater part of the money which was to be lent would be lent to prodigals and projectors, uh, what they used to call uh, promoters of fraudulent schemes or scammers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who alone would be willing to give this high interest? A great part of the capital of the country would thus be kept out of the hands which were most likely to make a profitable and advantageous use of it and thrown into those which were most likely to waste and destroy it. When the legal rate of interest, on the contrary, is fixed but a very little above the lowest market rate, sober people are universally preferred as borrowers to prodigals and projectors. The person who lends money gets nearly as much interest from the former as he dares to take from the latter, and his Mm -hmm. money is much safer in the hands of the one set of people than in those of the other. A great part of the capital of the country is thus thrown into the hands in which it is most likely to be employed with advantage. Um, Quite simply, when foreclosures started to hit, they started to hit on the highest interest rates that we saw. The subprime, that was the first area that was hit. That was where we saw the biggest damage, the greatest damage. Adam Smith, I think, was right. So yes, you would want to see loans made at 4%. Absolutely you would, much more so than the high usurious and subprime loans. Um, you think about it, and it's the riskiest loans that carry the highest rates. If you want to take the risk, go ahead. If you want a nice, safe bet, you take a lower rate. Okay, no, fair. That, that is definitely a fair, fair point. Uh, the, the, the riskier the investment, and I'm not the more likely anything, they'll take the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. You haven't been to Colorado recently, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't been to Colorado. 
<laughs> okay. Well, you know, we started out talking about some of the things espoused by the media, a lot of the negative news. Let me mention one more. Uh, and again, on interest rates, uh, one of the comments they make is things like uh, housing demand stayed strong even though interest rates increased, uh, as if there were kind of a firm law of economics that says uh, demand will drop as soon as interest rates go up a little bit. Uh, and I always paraphrase Clara Peller when I ask this, where's the proof? I haven't, at least personally in my lifetime, seen periods when rising interest rates actually killed the housing market. Have you looked at that issue, and how do you contrast that with the um, Adam, Smith's, uh, Adam Smith's philosophy? Oh, uh, yeah, you have. Um, maybe you're not old enough, Ronald, but late 70s, mortgage would have cost you somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 18%. That dried up mortgage mm -hmm. apps. Uh, goes to basic affordability, and demand can dry up. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that prices will drop, and there's a reason why. Rates tend to rise because, in a relative sense, the economy is doing well. Incomes are going up. People can afford more. They're willing to take out a larger right. mortgage. Intuitively, you would think that if interest rates go up, of course, house prices go down, but they mm -hmm. don't. The bottom line is that other factors, like the stronger economy, have a bigger impact on housing prices than the changes in the mortgage rates. But we've also seen it just in the past few months here. It does affect affordability, and that prices out some marginal buyers, uh, especially you see that among first-time buyers. Sure. National Association of Realtors actually did a study on this a while back. Rates tend to rise because the economy is doing well, incomes are going up, people can afford more, and they're willing to take out a larger market, but, but it doesn't always equate to lower prices. The mm -hmm. bottom line is that we have other stronger factors affecting housing prices than just mortgage rates, but they do play a role, certainly. Okay. And uh, actually, I am old enough. I did uh, take out a loan at 14.5%. It was a seven-year balloon, so I had, uh, you know, uh, that's why yeah. I got as low as 14.5% back in but those it, times. But it did so, slow up uh, housing back then. Um, but when you look at housing prices, uh, right. the jobs market would be a much bigger um, um, indicator on housing prices than mortgage rates, generally speaking. Exactly. Okay. And that's that's really a big big piece of what I was getting at is that uh, they make it sound like, you know, that one factor is going to change everything. Before we forget, let's remind our listeners how they find out uh, more about your commentaries and the shows you're hosting. Uh, what are those two websites you'd recommend they would uh, go to? Uh, if you'd like to listen, then uh, tune in to moneyradio.com. And uh, there you can have live streaming and archived audio. Uh, the live streaming is in the 4 o'clock hour Pacific time, Arizona time. Mm -hmm. uh, the audio stays up for about uh, three or four days. So if you miss something, you can go back a day or two. If you'd like to read along, the daily blog is eatthebankers.com, eatthebankers.com. I just post uh, my notes for the day at the site there. And it's now, free, knowing so go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a great site, and I'll mention it later on before I close, but knowing your insightful style, I suspect you have some additional thoughts, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic, to share with us that we didn't get a chance to talk about today, today being the 14th day of April. So these comments obviously apply to what's going on in the world today. But what other thoughts would you share with us? Well, 
it is rarely, as we were talking about the uh, the mortgage rates and the effect on the housing market, it is rarely one single item that, uh, that tips the scale, uh, that breaks the camel's back, if you will. Mm-hmm. Usually it's a combination of things. Generally speaking, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I think that there is a very good chance we could see a Dow 50,000 within uh, oh a few years, not uh, not in the next few years, but down the road. Mm-hmm. I think that the uh, U.S. economy is going to continue and continue to be very strong. I think we'll continue to be a world leader. Are there some threats? Are there some challenges? Absolutely. And some of them are huge. And we are very poor at predicting black swans. Uh, sometimes we can start to see a variety of events add up and become overwhelming, but it's rare that we see that black swan coming at us from left field. Uh, still, I'm I'm optimistic. I think we will uh, we will do well. It does require diligence. Uh, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's been good advice for a long time now, and I think it will be particularly good advice moving forward. But I think we're about to go through some of the most interesting times of our lives. I think the changes we are about to see are going to be staggering. Um, but if, if you're looking for the same old, same old, and hoping that you can just kind of glide along in a flight path, um, I don't think that that's the way. Anticipate change, embrace it, and I think that that's your best opportunity. Wow, well, good advice. And by the way, you're not quite as optimistic as uh, John Templeton was, who predicted the Dow to be at a million by the year 2100. So right. by the end of the century, uh, we'd be Could at a million. Be. And actually, the calculations are very realistic. Yeah, it's just not that far off. Um, exactly. You know, markets grow, and we will have a growing economy. You know, look at one of the great things here. Uh, in just the past few years, we have seen probably close to a billion people lifted up out of extreme poverty in this world. That's a massive accomplishment. Now, a lot of those people still experience poverty. There's still massive poverty that we have to deal with. But we actually have the opportunity in our lifetimes, and I've got some gray hairs, but in my lifetime, we could see the worst of extreme poverty eradicated from this planet. It's possible. It could happen. I'm very optimistic. And I'll buy the champagne when we can celebrate that. (laughs) And I'll drink it with you. Excellent, excellent. Sinclair, really enjoyed having you join me on the show and hope you'll accept an invitation to do it again, that it wasn't too too tough. Uh, Enjoy your calm style of making me more optimistic. I'm feeling better at the uh, end of the show than I did even at the beginning, uh, and the market is already booming. So... uh, and, and by the way, if we get a lot of interesting uh, topics that our guests would like us, our, our listeners like us to talk about, well, you may get that invitation soon. Well, thank you very much, Ronald. Uh, I thank you for your insightful questions. Very well done. You're, you're a top-notch interviewer, and it's a little different for me to be on the other side of the microphone. But you uh, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Really enjoyed having you. Thanks again, uh, Sinclair. Thank you. 
Now, with uh, Sinclair's uh, help, I certainly hope we provide you some insights and uh, signs to keep an eye on. One thing I can safely state is the future is uncertain, and it's information like we discussed today that provides the key to navigating those choppy waters we call the financial markets. Hindsight, on the other hand, is 2020. The last five years have been very profitable for investors everywhere. They all made money due to their optimism regardless of whether they invested in global equities, bonds, real estate, precious metals, any other commodity. But that doesn't mean they're all financial geniuses. Now, while preparing today's show, I've added a new ritual before each show to go to eatthebankers.com, review Sinclair's recent commentaries I may have missed on Money Radio. He provides information and insights I don't find elsewhere. Now, if you're a gloomy pessimist today, we provided a number of indicators to help you sleep better at night. Examples include, well, the yield curve is pretty normal, not flat or inverted. There are $2.6 trillion in excess reserves sitting in the banks, and possibly that comes out in the form of lending and a huge boom in liquidity. And contrary to what the media rambles about, we in the developed world are better off than ever in history. We just need to seek the opportunities both close and far. Now, if on the other hand you're a total optimist today and expect the next five years to be as good as the last, we provided a number of indicators to help you realize that reallocating or hedging will probably be a good idea. Examples include, did Ben Bernanke know something like his predecessor that made him retire recently? Inflation could be brewing, and it could hurt your buying power. Very few bull markets last more than five years, and obviously I can go on. But in reality, we'll see some of these indicators improve and others deteriorate, causing uh, the uh, uh, buyers and sellers to be in balance. Some people are optimists and some are pessimists. And by the way, you can't sell an asset if somebody else isn't buying. Now, if you missed uh, today's discussion, the link is in the announcement. Take you to the archive version, and that is WealthDNA.us. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, PI Solutions Corp., for helping us put together this show. You will not want to miss our next show. We'll be discussing my IRAs, my RAs, excuse me, my RAs, my RAs, and GRAs versus the traditional IRAs and 401ks with Teresa Gillarducci. We may cover what may be the most dramatic change to affect your retirement being planned in Washington, D.C. Now, the change doesn't only affect you as citizens. We've seen this same concept already dropped on citizens in several other countries. Surprisingly, there have been no revolts or uprisings to date over those changes. Will this time be different? The Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the fourth Monday of April. That's the next one. That is April 28th, 9 a.m. Arizona. Time, same place, same time. Always have the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. Stay cautiously optimistic and happy investing. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. 
and on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life, and remember, at 50, you're just getting started. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.